Father in heaven, thank you so much for my friend. Thank you for what you are doing through him and through Matt and through the people at Emmanuel. Thank you that they love you, that they love your word, and that they love each other. Father, would you make us to be uh, those people as well? We long um, to be that one great big body of Christ uh, that will be welcomed into the heavenlies upon your return. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that Blake is with us this morning. Would you bless uh, his words as yours, and would you open our hearts to receive them with meekness and truth. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, good morning. Okay, let me take a breath here. I mean, Chad said some nice stuff there. And um, so I won't pick on you in this service. I'll just pick on Dave. <laughs> um, it is indeed good to be with you and so much to share. And to be honest with you, um, Baptist time and Presbyterian time is a little bit different. Okay. I'm accustomed to preaching 45 to 50 minutes every week. And so I'm going to do my very best sight. People are leaving. Okay. No, just kidding. (laughs) No, I say all that to say I hope you brought a snack. (laughs) No, we're um, we're going to do our very best to be conscious of the time. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to be here. It is a privilege um, to be here. And uh, as I was um, expressing this to your session earlier this week, that... um, I love Christ's prayers, and I've grown to love um, the members of Christ's prayers as I've got to meet you and to know you, and one of your greatest testaments is that you love Dave and Jenny and Chad and Kelly and their families, and you've loved them well, and I know it has not been easy for y'all over the past year and a half. And uh, I just want you to know that you have a church family that consistently prays for you and is rooting for you. And so keep on. Keep the gospel first, which is what we're going to seek to do today as we look into his word. Matthew chapter 12. I recognize y'all have been in the Old Testament um, each, each week. Um, I listen to the, pul- to the pulpit ministry of Christ's prayers. Uh, I really mean it when I say that Chad and Dave um, serve as my pastors. They really do. They minister the word to me, and I'm thankful for how they're taking you through biblical theology, through the four-part story. And we're going to take a break from that this week um, because um, we're going through the study um, through the gospel according to St. Matthew at our church. And uh, we, we move a little slower. As I've already emphasized, we move a little slow. Um, Next week will be my 65th sermon in Matthew. Okay? Y'all going to cover the whole thing in in less than a year. And so... And uh, which I recognize that is, is very powerful. And uh, listening to Dave as we talk each and every week about um, where they're going to be. And it's like I, I'm encouraged by it. And it's like I can't wait. And uh, I haven't been able to listen to the sermon from Judges yet. And so from last week. So I'm looking forward to being able to do that. Um, and so we're going to look in Matthew chapter 12. The text is um, in your worship guide. And uh, we're going to read this text together. And I want us to just learn a little bit about um, the context in which it was written and then applied into the context we live in today. So let's look in Matthew chapter 12 
And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees came. Um, they answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this is God's word. As we've mentioned, this is the gospel according to St. Matthew, who was a tax collector who was viewed by many as a traitor to his own people. The Gospels serve for us as a theological biography of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew is particularly writing to Jewish people who have either put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah already, or they were Jewish people who were contemplating trusting in Jesus to be the Christ. Matthew begins this chapter, um, and the Pharisees, basically, if we're going to look at this, we need to understand this. There's, there's a conflict going on, and it is rising, and it is becoming more intense between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. You see, Jesus now has made a, a condemning statement. The very fact that they do not understand the very heart of the law. And they, therefore, do not understand their responsibility to the people of God. The Pharisees were not applying the law correctly. They were applying it as hypocrites, failing to notice the real needs of those under the spiritual care 
that they had been charged to take care of. We see this in this first part of this chapter. Whenever the disciples were going through the fields and they were hungry and Jesus says take and eat on the Sabbath. And they were there waiting. It's almost like I visualized them, you know, coming up behind the bush. They see? And Jesus tells them, says, and he gives them the heart and he goes back to David and talks about the priests and how he made provision for David and his men. And Jesus exposes their motive in the moment. This isn't about the Sabbath with you. And then they lay a trap, if you will, for Jesus as he comes into the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand there and he's sitting there and, it, and he was placed there. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus then points to them what the true heart of the Sabbath is and that is for mercy. And then he tells this man, he straightens his hand and his hand is restored. You see, they, they had neglected the real need as they were, were to offer spiritual care. In other words, they were to be the pastors to God's people. But they had missed it. So there's a key takeaway. In verse 14, it says that they then conspired. They, their, their conspiracy began to grow against Jesus and desiring for for him to be killed. Verse 14 shows us something that I think that's very important as we're going to transition now into our conversation today. And that is this. There is an inevitable conflict that is going to take place in the life of individuals and also in groups of people. And this is the inevitable conflict when confronted with the ministry with the life of Jesus. And that is this, that either Christ's righteousness has to go or our righteousness has to go. Both can't stay. So Matthew is now laying out some form of a skepticism. We've seen doubt in previous chapters already. Even um, what we would call disciple doubt. By, by John the Baptist who struggled because, he, because his unmet expectations as it was already mentioned. We see a, a divisive doubt that we see that keeps coming on through these religious leaders. And it's in the form of a skepticism which brings us to verse 38. Verse 38 says, And then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If we were to suppose this group was being sincere, then this request that they are making would be, would be perplexing. It would be puzzling. Because Jesus has already performed countless signs. Now we know that Matthew is not writing necessarily in chronological order. He has long sections that are chronological, but not all of it is chronological because he's building a case for the Jewish people to show them that he is the Christ. It would be like you telling a story, you trying to maybe um, try to build the case that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. And all the people of God would say, Amen. All right? And you would build this case and there would be times that when you're starting to talk about a certain attribute or certain quality about his career, you may would find yourself jumping around in his career to give examples of that. And that's what Matthew was doing. 
But here we are finding a sense of chronological order here. But let me tell you some things that have happened that have preceded this request by the Pharisees. Jesus cleanses the lepers. Um, The centurion's servant is healed. He heals many. He calms a storm. He heals two men with demons. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. A girl is restored to life, resurrected. A woman is healed. Jesus heals two blind men. Jesus heals a mute man. We've already seen that he healed a man's withered hand. Pharisees had been present for several of these because they were sitting there waiting to give accusation. If this is a continuation of the prior conversation, Jesus had just come out of removing a demon from a blind and mute man. And what was their response? He does this by the power of Beelzebul. Why ask for another sign, you may be wondering? It's because they're skeptics. Which brings me to a question. Have you ever been skeptical? Maybe when someone has made a claim that they're telling you the truth, and have you always just met it with trust? Even if an argument is laid out for you, I think we can identify here. Perhaps for some reasons why we're skeptical is because we often, um, we've been told something like that before. And we've been, it's only led to disappointment in our lives. Maybe because we really aren't sure of the person's character that is making the claim or the credentials that they have on that matter. Maybe it's because we haven't seen or haven't been given enough proof in our own minds to validate the claim that is being made. Or, or, Christ press, hear me, or we just don't like the claim that's been made. Can't we identify some? But Matthew is really honing in here. Utilizing this narrative that, Jesus, that he's making this case to his readers what the root of all of it is. And it's not necessarily one, two, or three, but it's number four that we mentioned. You see, one thing you're going to find out, when people are presented with the gospel, given that beautiful, wonderful truth, at the end of it all, the issue is not a lack of information Nor is it a lack of experience, but it's desire. Listen to the words of Jesus as he now penetrates the heart of the request. In verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Evil and adulterous generation. Now, how many of you want that to be put on your tombstone? They were a part of a wicked and adulterous generation. Obviously here, um, most commentaries believe that, the, that adulterous is referring to that spiritual adultery. That sin that Israel kept falling back into. Don't we see that recurring theme? You're going to see it plenty in the Old Testament. We see God providing command, God providing covenant, and then command with his people. God's people 
rejecting, God judging, correcting, his people repenting, relationship restoring, and then the cycle goes over again. Idolatry was the primary form where they would look and they would, they would look at the other nations and with envy at times. We find, we find that the, the children of Israel were very envious people. They wanted a king like other nations had a king. Samuel says, you don't need a king. You have a king. But that brings us to our text. The main focus of today. There's three dangers that Jesus then goes and shows us. Matthew is now bringing this to light for the Jewish people to warn them. Three dangers, both corporately, which I believe is the primary message here, because Jesus is addressing a group. He's addressing a generation. But also individually, this can be applicable too. And the reason being is why? Because what makes up groups? People. So number one, I want you to see this, that Jesus then, first of all, addresses something with them. And of course, what does he do? He uses the Old Testament because he's explaining. Imagine you... Some of you, how many of you have been married, or not married? Well, yeah, married. We'll say married, married to the faith. How many of you have been, a, have been a professor of the faith for longer than 30 years? Wow. Okay. Now, imagine that if you were a pastor for well over 30 years, and then a 30-year-old, 31, 32 at this time, comes around and says, oh yeah, the way you've been teaching it and the way you've been applying it, you're wrong. That's really the context. That's the position that the Pharisees, the religious leaders are of the day. Jesus has come on the scene and says, you have missed it. Well, has Isaiah spoke? With your words, you honor me, but your heart is far from me. So he is going to use the Old Testament and he's going to show us three dangers. Number one, I want us to see a danger here of a privilege that brings greater condemnation. In verse 39 it says, But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. How many of you know the, the, um, the book of Jonah? You've, you've heard of this, okay, you know, that big great fish that swallows him. All right, he was supposed to go to Nineveh. He's called by God to go to Nineveh and to preach a message of repentance. He says, uh-uh, not going to do that. They've been cruel to our people. I hope they die. I hope they burn. I'm just telling you, that's what he wants. He wanted God to bring it down. He said, no, just drop the hammer on them. Don't waste your time. So what does he do? He literally goes in the opposite direction, goes to Tarshish, and he goes that way, and, but God's not done. doesn't sound like God gave him much of a choice, by the way. And so what happens? This big storm comes, and, and they're on the boat, and all the, the crew members are saying, what's going on? And he says, listen, guys, here's the deal. <laughs> and I'm giving the Reader's Digest version. So here's the deal, guys. I'm a prophet of the Lord, one who fears him, which was debatable at the time, but he's probably really scared at this moment. And he says, the truth of the matter, the reason all of this happened is because of me. Cast me over and your lives will be spared. Now, the crew members actually tried to find another way. 
to, they're like, no, we, maybe we can weather the storm. But eventually it got so rough, they said, all right, you're out. And so they, they threw him over and he goes, to the, he goes into the depths of the sea. And then and the Bible says that God prepared a great fish. And, and this fish comes and, and it swallows him. And, and in the belly of, the, of this great fish, he, he says, Lord, remember me. He, and, he, and he says, Lord, and it repents of what he was doing. He says, Lord, if you get me out of this blubber or whatever it is, I, I'll go to Nineveh. And God sovereignly directs and spits him up on the land. And he's doing this, walking to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. And by the way, can I remind you that just because he was doing it by the letter of the law, don't think we can see in chapter 4 of Jeremiah that I don't think he was really doing it with the gusto that he would have done it if he was preaching to God's people. I kind of visualize him walking through, you know, repent. The day of the Lord is at hand. <laughs> you know, getting out. He says, okay, I did my thing. And so he sits back. And guess what happened? They repented. And he sits there and he goes, God, I knew it. I knew that if I went to Nineveh and if I gave them the message of repentance and if they repented, that you would be gracious and you would be merciful. And then he got upset because he sat under that juniper tree and God prepared one of them little things to go up there and it eats it and it dies, it withers, and he gets even more mad. And God says, how in the world are you getting so mad about this? And you're getting mad about that. And this is a plant. And those are people. And we don't know if Jonah repented. We don't know if he just died a bitter old man. Because the story ends. What's the point though? Why is Jesus bringing this up here? Because I want you to understand that we've already seen in the book of Matthew. I believe it's in chapter 8 or chapter 9 where where Jesus says that on the day of judgment, it was going to be more tolerable for pagans than it was the people who sat under the ministry of the Messiah. Those who saw the gospel in flesh. And what does he say here? He says this evil and adulterous generation, the testimonies of Nineveh, the professional persecutors, the ones that would, I mean, they were professional torturers. I mean, you, one thing, okay, they were known for this. Historians say they were known for their art of torturing that they would skin individuals and they would hang their skin in front of them and hang them in front of it. And as they would bleed and die to death, they would just be staring literally at the skin of their face. These people were nasty people. And yet, he says, the testimony of those individuals will condemn this generation. Why? Because they repented, even, even at the apathetic, passive message of a waning prophet. But this generation... They get the Messiah and they reject him. He also gives a second illustration for us. 
He says in verse 42, the queen of the south, many believe to be the queen of Sheba that we find in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. He says here that the testimony of this queen will also rise up on the day of judgment to this generation and condemn it. Jesus identifies the queen of the south as the queen who visited King Solomon to benefit from his wisdom. She wanted to find out if what she had heard is true. Could there really be a king this wise? She traveled to Jerusalem, quizzed Solomon with riddles. She also brought wealth of gifts and spices and jewels for her, from her own land to give to him. Now, it says that her testimony will testify against a wicked and adulterous generation that rejects the Messiah. What do these two groups have in common? Remember who he's writing to. Jewish people. Gentiles. And so here we see that there is a privilege that Jesus is pointing out and I don't want us to miss this this morning, church family, that we, have a, that we have an amazing privilege. See, we have a benefit that they don't even have in this moment. We know that he's risen from the dead. We know that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. We know that the gospel is real. We know that the Father has vindicated him. What a privilege that each person in here this morning has. And if you don't understand that, and if you have never heard that, you hear that today. What a privilege that God, according to his sovereign plan, has placed you in this moment to hear this. Jesus is alive. That's what the sign of Jonah is. He said this, aren't you thankful that a wicked and adulterous generation gets no signs? They still get grace. They still get common grace. They still get mercy shown to them. They still get to see the sunrise. The unjust gets to see the sunrise. Just like the, the ones who have received mercy. And here he says, he says, you won't get a sign. Is that what he says? No. He says a sign except. Except that the son of man will rise from the heart of the earth. Number two, we got to hurry. We see a piety that brings greater corruption. We see in verse 43 through 45 where Jesus reveals a, the point of his story to this evil, and, this evil generation. He demonstrates it by his authority over Satan and he casts out demons. And, but here, some, some use this text for demonology. We're not going to go down and chase those rabbits, okay? That demons, whenever they're not occupying individuals, they're in the desert place because it shows the, la um, the lack of beauty in God's creation. We're not going to go there. There, I said something about it. Are you happy? Good. Let's, let's move forward. But Jesus talks about here an unclean spirit that is inhabiting an individual and then when it gets bored, it leaves. And then, um, and then it doesn't find rest elsewhere. So it decides it's going to come back to that individual. And when he comes back, he's found that the place has been renovated. It's been cleaned up. The floors have been swept. The furniture's been dusted. 
It's not all in shambles as it was when he left the first time. And so he goes and gets seven, which it doesn't mean literally seven. It means that there was just an onslaught of effort to consume this individual once again. And it says that the ones that he brought with him were even worse than him. And so this demon comes back and they inhabit and it says the condition of that individual was worse than it was at first. Remember who he's comparing this to. It's not necessarily an individual. He's talking about a generation. He's talking about individuals who have, who have experienced the demonic oppression of, this, of evil. And yet there have been times where, where it's gone. And now we're seeing that there is a piety that has taken place. It's a symbol of religious activity. Where this group of people have cleaned up. They're all about ceremonies. They're all about keeping their laws. They're all about these things. They're all about doing all this and they've cleaned up really well. They fast. They tithe more than they're supposed to. They're required to do. They give more offerings. They do all these things. They remember they, they would wear. They would fast. And and he says this generation here has cleaned up well, but it's only going to lead to more corruption. So Jesus is pointing out here a piety that brings greater corruption. And I'll bring more clarity to that in a moment. But let me go to number three. We see a pedigree that brings greater confusion. In verse, 40, um, in verse 46 it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. So Jesus is now talked about. He's talking about Jonah. He's got his disciples in here. And he's got these Pharisees and the scribes on the outskirts. And he's talking about this generation. He's talking about Jonah, the queen of Sheba. And he's talking about this, this demon, this unclean spirit here. And then somebody, a man comes in, knocks on the door and says, Hey, hey Jesus, your mama's outside. Now, I, I, I grew up in the South. I know you can't tell that with my, you know, my eloquent accent. All right. But anytime growing up when somebody told me that my mom wanted to see me, it was like, you go because if you don't, you're in trouble. So they say your mom's outside and your brother's. And Jesus stops here for a moment because Jesus is prioritizing here. And he says, behold, could you imagine being Peter, James, and John? Being one of the disciples or Mary Magdalene or one of the other followers that's sitting there? I mean, Mary, his mom, and his brothers, okay? And so we, we come here and Mary and, and he says, these are my brothers. This is the affection that's stronger than even a mother's affection and a son's affection for his mother. Why? He says, because we have the same father. Because they do the will of the father. And see, if we're not careful today, we can, we can have a sense of pedigree in our lives that would make us think that because of certain pedigree, Jesus prioritizes. So I want to bring this to a conclusion today. So, we, so don't, don't lose me here. I'm almost done. I want you to understand because I, I know the testimony of Christ's presence in your leadership. Gospel centrality. Love people or love God, love people, love your city. 
And if we're not careful, because, and I know what we get accused of sometimes. We get accused of it. Churches like yours get accused of it. Sometimes we sing that we're a little heavy on the grace and not, a, not enough on the law. And so when we hear texts like this, and then we start pointing out privilege, and we start pointing out piety, and we start pointing out pedigree, we could start looking at this thing and we could say, okay, so you're saying that you're against those things. But I want to emphasize to you that we're not talking about privilege in and of itself. We're talking about a particular privilege. We're talking about a particular piety. We're talking about a particular pedigree. See, this text isn't a text that should steer us here at Christ's Prez, if I may join your church for just a moment. That isn't steering us from wanting Christ's Prez to be, a, to be a community of spiritual privilege. This text shouldn't steer us away from that. Meaning, we still teach God's Word. We preach the gospel. We desire to have a culture that is centered on Christ. Amen? Okay. Nor is this text a text that should steer us from wanting Christ's prayers to be a community of spiritual piety. Meaning that we still want to show reverence for God as a holy and loving Father that manifests Himself by growing in our discomfort for our sin. Specifically, our sin. Now I recognize the culture that we live in. And I recognize that it's really easy to turn on Fox News or CNN or just on a news outlet and to look there and get disgusted with sin. But we got to understand that sanctification is when you start becoming disgusted with your sin. So this isn't to steer us away from privilege or piety. And this text also isn't a text to steer us away from wanting Christ's prayers to be a community of spiritual pedigree. Meaning, we want believers to experience the joy of seeing gospel centrality run throughout our family lineages. Like, we, I want my kids to have a heritage of gospel centrality. And I desire that should the Lord tarry, that my grandchildren have a lineage that points them to gospel centrality. See, we're not telling you today that privilege or that piety or that pedigree is wrong. But what are we saying? We're saying whenever we start putting our faith in those things... So how do we apply this today? Perhaps you're an unbeliever. Maybe you've been visiting. And I'm thankful that you're here. And I know the the church family and I know the elders are glad that you're here. Perhaps you're thinking today, maybe you fall into this category that you have been banking on the fact that you have seen and heard so much Christianity... And you have adopted so many of the certain moral practices that you've created some sort of resume. 
based on what you and your based on what you do and your ability to not do some things. Basically, you're looking at it like this: because of the influences of Christianity in my life, I'm hoping that my good is going to outweigh my bad. Maybe that's not you at all today. Maybe what you do in your mind isn't about Christian influences at all. But you have a desire to be a good person. Which is confusing to me. Because what do you have that, that you weigh and compare that with? It's, it's maybe based on some unclear moral compass that only you can define. Or maybe indeed today you are a skeptic. Like the Pharisees, you are tempted by your own traditions to rely on something outside or maybe just alongside Jesus for your righteousness. Whatever the reason, the message is the same. You are being offered clarity, clarity that only the gospel can give. You are being offered hope, hope that isn't based on your wins and your losses. It's not based on your history. It's not based on your upbringing. It's not based on your knowledge. It's not based on your habits. It's not based on what you do, but it is based on what has been done. And that is... That because of the fall of humankind, that the righteousness and the holiness of God must be satisfied. And that is why Jesus came. And you hear me today. You hear this hope. And you say, I've been saved longer than you've been alive, Blake. And I'm like, wow, 51 years. I'm just kidding. I'm not 51. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you need to hear it again today. Maybe you've been wrestling with guilt this week. You need to understand that that's why Jesus came to this world. And he lived the life that you cannot live. And he died the death that you should die. And when he died that death, as it states here, the sign was given to a wicked and adulterous generation. That God looked upon that sacrifice and said, I accept. And, and according, to second, or according to Philippians chapter 2, the Father vindicated him and raised him from the dead. And Jesus has ascended into heaven. And why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus that has gone before you up there will return. And we believe that. We believe in the second coming. We believe the completion in the story. That one day we will be joint heirs with him. And because of that it is justification by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. Not of your works. No man can boast. And to the glory of God today. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You can be healed. Hear that today. Your hope is not based on what you do, but it is based on what has been done. Believers, before we approach the table, 
Beware of having the wrong concept of privilege, of piety, and pedigree. You see, there's a trap. A trap that churches are falling into, have fallen into, and are drowning in today. I meet with them every single week because of a message of trust and obey. Except it's not in that order. It's obey and trust. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? Even with our understanding of the gospel, we flip it sometimes. We think it's obey and trust, but no, it is trust and obey. The concept that obedience creates relationship challenges everything about the gospel. Listen, it even challenges the doctrine of the incarnation. Think about this today. Is Jesus the son because he obeyed? Is that what qualified him to be the son? No. Jesus was the son. And it was revealed when he obeyed and did the will of the father. And he kept the law perfectly. And that applies to you today. Obedience doesn't create relationship no more than it did for Jesus. Obedience reveals it. So today, can I close with a hymn before we approach the table? We don't sing this hymn anymore. Maybe y'all do. It says, Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Once I was lost in sin's degradation, Jesus came down to bring me salvation. Lifted me up from sorrow and shame. Now I belong to him. The gospel for the child of God today whispers into your soul. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Not by privilege, not by piety, not by pedigree, only because of Jesus, only because of Jesus.